0: Um, Last week, uh, we covered part one of my class on the Reformers' perspective of worship. And we talked about how worship services looked like during the medieval period, and why the Reformers felt the need to change the worship services in forms that were more biblical. And as I said last week, we often mistaken the Reformation to simply be a recovery of the gospel of salvation by faith alone. And although that was part of it, it was more than that, right? Uh, Worship was understood to be the most important activity in all of life that we would ever engage in. And and that's how we ought to understand worship. You know, the purpose of why we exist is to worship God. Um, it's, It's very important. And if that is important, then it requires us to consider, you know, what exactly we're doing in our worship. So it was vital for the church to re-examine and reform certain practices that were unbiblical during that time of the Reformation. For John Calvin, in his treatise entitled uh, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, he viewed this endeavor as an urgent call for the church to flee from idolatry. So he saw it as, uh, as something urgent, something that seriously needed to be considered. The purifying of our worship service or the reforming of our worship services has the goal in mind of purifying the church from false worship and idolatry. Again, that's how Calvin saw it. Now the problem, even now, with starting a campaign to reform worship is that it is often not received well, right? People grow accustomed to their worship styles and they find it hard to let certain practices go. But for the reformers, there was a guiding principle that ordered all thought, all discussion revolving worship and it was the principle of sola scriptura right Um, abiding and submitting to the authority of scripture now sola scriptura you may be familiar with that with that term but in summary sola scriptura is the principle that scripture alone is the only sufficient certain and infallible rule for saving knowledge for faith and for obedience And it's not to say that there aren't any other rules or authorities that exist, but that the Scriptures is the only one that is sufficient, certain, and infallible, that combination, making it the clearest and the greatest of all authorities containing God's revelation. And so for Calvin, this meant that if we were to consider what is acceptable worship, the place we need to go is where it's most clearly displayed, right? The Scriptures. Now, this may seem obvious, right? Go to the Bible to find out what you have to do for worship. But there's more to it, because for Calvin, unlike Luther, it wasn't enough to say that worship ought to be biblical. Right? You can go to any false church today or, or any church out there that, it, that are engaged in false worship, and they are, they're all going to tell you it's, what they're doing is biblical. Right? They're, in a sense, getting their principles from the Bible according to how they see things, right? But uh, for Calvin, unlike Luther, it wasn't enough to say that worship ought to be biblical. Calvin believed that scripture should determine not only what's acceptable, it's not only the place where you go to find things to do, but it's also the place where you go to find how to know what things are forbidden. See that? There's a positive and negative there, right? And Calvin saw the need for that that level of restriction when it came to to worship listen to the quote uh, taken from the necessity of reforming the church I'll i'll put it up here on the screen it says i know how difficult it is to persuade the world that god disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned in his word the opposite persuasion which cleaves to them being seated as it were, in the very bones and marrows, is that whatever they do has in itself a sufficient sanction, provided it exhibits some kind of zeal for the honor of God. So Calvin here is calling out the false idea that if what you do in worship, even if it's not commanded, is sincere, God will be pleased. As if to say that sincerity is what is, is the key virtue when it comes to true worship of God. Now, Calvin wouldn't say that it doesn't matter um, how sincere you are, right? He, he's, he's uh, excuse me, let me rephrase that. Calvin would say that it doesn't matter how sincere you are. If you're wrong, you're still wrong. You see, that you can be as sincere as you want, but if what you're doing is disobedience, uh, you know, what good is your sincerity? Now, he wasn't saying that sincerity shouldn't be practiced. Of course, you should be sincere, but sincerity doesn't excuse disobedience in worship. Let's continue here. I'm going to show you um, what Calvin continues to say. He goes on to say this, and I quote, But since God not only regards as fruitless, but also plainly abominates, whatever we undertake from zeal to his worship if at variance with his command, what do we gain by a contrary course? The words of God are clear and distinct. Obedience is better than sacrifice. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. He's he's quoting First uh, Samuel fifteen twenty two, and Matthew fifteen nine. He goes on to say, every addition to his word, especially in this matter, is a lie. Mere will worship is vanity, and this is the decision. And when once the judge has decided, it is no longer time to debate, end quote. And so what Calvin is arguing here is that no matter how zealous you are while you worship, obedience must take precedence. Now think about it. What kind of zeal disregards God's word or dismisses the consideration of what is acceptable worship? Dismissing it as as something unimportant. There are many who will prefer to have their affections stirred toward heavens by any means, but really don't want to be under any restriction. They say, don't put God in a box. Or they'll say, don't put limitations to worship, as to assume that the driving virtue in worship is doing away with any restrictions and pursuing a kind of worship experience that satisfies your preferences. Is that what worship is? And the people that are guilty of this kind of will worship, interestingly, are not only those who are from the seeker-sensitive or the seeker-driven churches. You know, the first thing that often comes to our mind when we think of false worship is those easy believism kind of churches. They're huge, and they have a lot of production, you know, in their worship services, um, You know, they have a big band and things that really appeal to the to the eyes, especially to to the young generation. That's usually the first um, the first churches that come to mind when we think about you know false worship or will worship. But even even in the traditional churches, you'll find many who are attached to their preferences in a kind of traditionalistic way that doesn't seek biblical fidelity. And this is why Calvin says that anything additional to God's instruction of worship is mere will worship. It, it's just whatever satisfies your own will and, and pleasure. Um, so you can fall on, on both sides. You can be a, a traditionalist where you, in a sense, still disregard biblical fidelity, or you can be a modernist, one who is, is, enjoys contemporary worship, Uh, regardless of whether the elements of worship that are, are, are being performed or experienced in that worship service is faithful to scripture. Your ideas then become the driving force of worship instead of what God has prescribed in his holy word. And again, this brings me to this topic of the reformed regulative principle of worship. And I'll be dividing this discussion in three parts. Number one. I'll talk about a definition of the regulative principle of worship and its historical consideration. So we'll talk about what exactly RPW is and we'll look at history and see where we see this this concept. And then the second point I'll be talking about is I'll be giving a biblical warrant for RPW and I'll discuss some of the objections, common objections. And then the last point, number three, I'll end by discussing what are the acceptable elements and we'll deal with certain circumstances that may seem to bring conflict with some of the elements related to regulative principle of worship. So let me begin by defining RPW and some historical consideration. I'll define the regulative principle of worship based on its historical meaning. And so the regulative principle is the principle that true worship is only what is commanded or implied in scripture. True worship is only what is commanded or implied in scripture. So anything added to it that is not commanded or implied from scripture is considered false worship. In simple terms, what is commanded is right and what is not commanded is wrong. Now, this view goes in contrast with what many churches today believe, which is the view that worship can also include anything that isn't expressly forbidden. So they, they, some, a lot of churches who hold that view would say that there's some flexibility, that there are things that we can include as long as it's not a sin, even though we don't see explicit commands for it. I'm gonna show you a diagram of those differences. You can see here This is the regulative principle. This is the one that I'm arguing for. And it says here, the the definition of it, that true worship is only what is commanded. And in that view, what's considered false worship is anything that's not commanded. And then here on the bottom, uh, we see the normative principle. That was that second uh, principle that I, I explained just now. That true worship is what is commanded, of course, plus anything that is expressly not forbidden. And then what they consider false worship is only what is condemned, right? Only the things that are sin are false worship. So you see that the second view is a bit more open and broader. So again, the top view is the regulative principle, the bottom view here is the normative principle. And the normative principle is, um, uh, I'll give you a couple of examples of churches that that hold to the normative, say like the Lutheran church or or the Anglican church, etc. Now considering the history of this principle, I've mentioned before that worship services in the Reformed tradition weren't always identical across the board. In fact, in my last class, I demonstrated some of those differences in the liturgies among some of the the Reformed churches, yet they shared distinctly Reformed principles, right? And I'd still argue that the overwhelming position of the Reformed churches in history has been the position of holding to the regulative principle, even though its its expression may have varied. Now, to prove that, I'm gonna read from a few historic reformed confessions, beginning with the Belgic Confession. I'll post it up here. I'm reading Belgic Confession, article number 32. It says this, we also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, They ought to always, excuse me, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only Master, has ordained for us. And therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God. You can see that key phrase there, human innovations. So even in the Dutch Reformed, you see that uh, they were against you know, the inventions of men and and, uh, having that be part of the worship services. Another one is the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, Number 96 question. What is God's will for us in the second commandment? And the answer to that is that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way that has been commanded in God's word. So again, you see the same, the same thing, the same principle. You know, don't add to it. Don't invent your own way of worship. And then here uh, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then I, I put it together with the Second London Confession, which is our confession, because it says the same thing. And these are the words uh, from our confession. It says, The light of nature shows that there is a God, who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself. And so, limited by his own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations, excuse me, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. So you see in, in the Reformation, Reformation period, in the, in the high Orthodoxy period, where the confessions of our own tradition have been formulated you see that principle still being carried on, which is this principle that the one who regulates worship is God himself. Now, reading through each of these, you'll notice a common rejection of any will worship or human innovations or worship from the imagination and devices of men or any, or other, way, not, any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, with that said, let's consider the second point. The second point is a biblical warrant for the regulative principle of worship. And I'll be discussing also objections to the regulative principle and giving its response. So I'll be going back and forth with common objections and biblical warrants. But I'll start with, I'll start with a common objection to the regulative principle. Um, so Sam Waldron has a little booklet, uh, and I think he rightly points out... Uh, a few things on this subject that I think people have trouble with, which is the idea that there are things that are okay in all of life, but then there's a confusion that when it comes to worshiping on Sunday, there are all of a sudden all these restrictions and limitations. So for, for, most, for most people, most Christians, they're confused about why their regulations for a certain period of time on a Sunday, but then the rest of life, there aren't all these limitations. Isn't all of life worship, they might ask. Uh, Isn't isn't it a kind of worship to God, for example, when I work or when I support my family or when I wash the dishes? I'm a martyr when I'm washing the dishes. (laughs) Um, Isn't all of life worship? Aren't we called to do all things to the glory of God? Why is there a regulative principle for gathered worship with limited elements, but not one for the rest of the week? Now, some have argued that it is mere superstition to think that special rules apply only during gathered worship as if that setting is more sacred than other settings. And the response, the response to this objection um, is, well, I'll begin by clearly showing in Scripture that there is a, a, a reality that is unique to the church and its worship that demands that it be specially ordered in the way that I would say the regulative principle assumes. So there, there's a unique ecclesiastical reality that the gathered church is the place of God's special presence and therefore is a setting that is holy and it's a setting that is, it has a distinct way that the rest of life doesn't have. Um, and I'm going to point that out in Scripture, that when we gather to worship, God's presence is especially there in a way that apart from that setting, he's not. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Can I have someone read that?
1: If your brother sins against you, go and tell him this fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among
0: them. Thank you. So you'll you'll notice a few things in this passage. Uh, First of all, when the word church or ecclesia is used there, it refers not to any special building, but to the gathered people of God. And in this context, Christ explains how the church was to make an official decision of excommunication. So the church is gathered and they're concluding that there's a person that has to be taken out. Okay, But the point I'm making is is that the promise of verse 20 of God being in the midst of them in that decision comes attached to a very plain condition or or a limitation. What's the condition um, to where there there can be an official decision made by the church or, or, or something that God, that we can, we can see a promise that God is actually there among them. And it's that condition that we read in verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And so, again, the stated limitation found in these words is the assembling of the local church, the formal or public gathering of the people of God. In other words, although we know that God is present everywhere, there are settings that God is especially present which is when two or three are gathered in his name. Now, what does that mean to gather in his name? Is there gatherings that can be done among Christians that are not done in his name, according to how it's being explained here? What does it mean to gather in his name? It simply means that the promise of his special presence is not when one or two Christians are gathered casually watching TV. (laughs) Is that when you can... uh, that you can say that God is especially present, you know, at making that setting the church. No, Christians can hang out together, watch TV, and that's not what that means in the scriptures when it talks about God being there with the believers. Um, rather, it's when two or three are gathered. Two or three are gathered in His name, and that's the qualifier there. In His name, for the purposes of worship. Um, so. When you see that phrase gathered in his name, it's referring to a formal, special uh, gathering that's done. Um, you know, we, would, we would consider that the worship service when uh, there is an invocation, a, a, a calling upon his name, and the body of Christ is joined together um, to, to, to perform or to participate in worship. Let me back that up with another passage to, to make sure that you believe me. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verses 4 through 5. I'll read it. It says, When you are assembled, again, you hear that phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of, excuse me, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in in the day of the Lord. So even Paul, in his discussion about an issue that's going on in the church he's saying you know what's wrong with you people why do you still have this member in your congregation that is living in sin and it hasn't repented of it it's not willing to repent of it what, uh, it's time for you to make a move and you do it as the church not just as individual Christians but I, I need you to make this decision make this move as the church and 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 how does he uh, describe that uh, that uh, transition from being just the um, individual Christians to, to becoming a setting where you are now acting and and um, being um, a participant a participant of the church as a congregation, well. He, he describes that setting as assembling in the name of the Lord Jesus with the power of our Lord Jesus. So, again, Paul is dealing with an excommunication issue in this verse, but he describes that particular assembly of believers as being one that is done in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the power of the Lord Jesus. And, notice, one that is done regularly, which is why he begins this, his statement with the words, when you are assembled, right? Not if or someday that you assemble, but that there's a, there's a regularity of their assembly. Uh, and again, the point of referencing this passage is to demonstrate that there's a particular setting in which God is especially present with, with his people in a way that he's not in other instances um, when, say, his people are scattered and going about their week independently. Now, moving along... The Bible explicitly condemns all worship that is not commanded by God. And so connecting that with this concept of uh, there being a time when the church is gathered and they're coming together as the people of God, as the church, in that setting, there are, there are in, there's instruction from the New Testament that tells us how we ought to behave. And again, we're, we're, we're touching on this subject of having certain limitations in that setting where those limitations may not necessarily exist in your daily life. And so in that setting, we see that the Bible explicitly condemns all worship that's not commanded by God. I want you to listen to the words in Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 through 30. In fact, let me me get a volunteer to read that. Sure. Thanks.
2: When the Lord your God cuts off you the nations whom you go in to dispossess and you dispossess them and dwell in their land take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods saying how did these nations serve their gods that i also may do the same
0: i love this passage because um I think it's interesting. (laughs) It's interesting to read that God is warning Israel that if they end up dwelling in pagan lands, that they not learn worship or worship styles from them. And he says, he, he poses the question, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? Right? God, since the beginning, has been concerned not only about the elements, but how those elements are performed. Um, and again, he's been concerned about how he is worshipped and is the one who sets those terms. And notice what the Lord says a few verses after that same passage, uh, looking at in Deuteronomy 12.32. Can someone read that? Everything
2: that I command you, you
0: shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Amen. So everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do, you shall not add to it or take from it. So as far as God's uh, perspective on worship and the things that we ought to offer to him, he doesn't want addition nor subtraction. Another example of scripture condemning all worship that is not commanded by God is Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. And I'll read this one. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered, and that's the key word here, unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me i will be sanctified and before all the people i will be glorified and it says here that aaron held his peace in other words aaron said i have no, nothing to say to that you're right um god is to be regarded holy and what he instructed you're supposed to be careful to do me personally this is a frightening passage uh but it it serves as a warning that God is serious about his worship and condemns the innovations of men. And I know we didn't read the rest of the story here, but Moses comes into the scene and he starts telling everyone, I don't want to see you grow your hair long. I don't want to see you rip your shirt. You know, these were signs of remorse and sorrow, sort of like mourning that the sons of Aaron passed away because they offered false worship. In other words, he, he goes around and he tells everyone, I don't want you to even mourn for them. Uh, and then God speaks into the situation. and He says the same thing to the rest of the camp. They ask them to take the bodies or take the ashes outside of the camp and uh, sends out a decree that no one is to mourn after their death. And the reason why this is so harsh is because God does not tolerate Um, an approach to him a coming before his throne uh, uh, that moment of worship God doesn't tolerate the arrogance of bringing to him false worship not considering what he has commanded Um, and that disobedience uh, I think is something that um, we see was uh, an abomination to God now, moving along, some, some may object, okay? They, they look at this and say, okay, ho- hold your horses. Uh, this regulative principle may seem consistent with the Old Testament and the previous covenants maybe, but it's no longer fitting for believers in the New Covenant. Well, I think a, a good sort of answer to that is referencing Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. This is a verse that I mentioned last week. Um, but I'll read it. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let, it, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's interesting that this is a New Testament verse. We see the author telling the church that we must offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And this indicates that in the New Covenant, there still exists forms of worship that are acceptable and forms of worship that are not acceptable. And I, what's interesting is that the writer of this passage, he, he spends most of the book, right, most of Hebrew, writing about the newness of the covenant and the blessing of the, of the new covenant, how different it is from the terror of the old covenant. Yet there is a continuation still Of a requirement to worship in a manner that is acceptable in other words even though there's newness to the new covenant there's still something that transferred over and it's it's that uh, posture that disposition uh, before god and also that attentiveness to be careful how we approach the lord and uh, to use the writer of hebrews's words uh, for god is a consuming fire and the reason that the author gives this uh, this uh, counsel or this instruction, r- really, um, is that he recognizes that God is a consumer, consuming fire, almost reminiscent to this incident with Nadab and Abihu. And I would say there are many more scripture references that I can give, but being limited with time, I'm just going to list them. So if you're interested in further research on acceptable worship, um, I'll give you a few passages, both in the old and in the new. Uh, the first one is Deuteronomy 12, um, 29 through 32. It, it's what I just read, um, but more a little more than that. There's Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 5. There's Joshua 1, verse 7. Joshua 23, verses 6 through 8. Matthew 15, verses 8 through 13. And finally, Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Now, after considering what the scriptures teach regarding God uh, regulating his worship, the question that would follow from this is, okay, what are, so what are the actual elements of worship that are acceptable to God in the New Covenant. And this brings us to my final point, uh, which is the elements and circumstances related to RPW. So regarding the elements of worship, our confession, I think, provides a helpful list of specifics that are both biblical and consistent with the New Covenant. And I'm going to put them up on the screen. Beginning with uh, the Second London Confession... Uh, chapter 22, paragraph 3. It gives us one of the elements as prayer, with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship. And there's a scripture reference for prayer being an essential element of true worship. The second. Uh, uh, slide here you'll see the other elements I'll read the whole paragraph from the confession it says the reading of the scriptures preaching and hearing the word of God teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord as also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship of God to be performed in obedience to him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear. Moreover, solemn humiliation with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. There's some uh, scripture references there. Uh, if, it's, if you can't see it and if you're interested, you can look in the confession, you can ask me, and I can give you the list of uh, scripture passages. But I think this is a helpful list, um, and it's, it's rooted in the New Testament, while also considering the theology of the Old and New, as it's, uh, it, there's a, a progression in Revelation. There are things that the Old Testament informs us. Um, It it informs us on what are the things that we don't need to be doing anymore. You have a good biblical theology and understand the New Testament's relation to the old. But these are the elements that we see that are left once you remove the ceremonial restrictions that have been done away with uh, through the sacrifice of Christ. I want to make that list easier. So I'll I'll say it this way. I think this is an easy way to remember the list of elements reading the word (laughs) praying the word singing the word preaching the word uh, seeing the word in baptism and tasting the word in the Lord's Supper now again these are just ways to simplify it Uh, but notice how biblical worship is and, and how it revolves around God's holy word All those elements um, are really centered around God's words. And this is what makes uh, New Testament worship spiritual. Um, When you hear or when you read Jesus saying that worship will be, now in the new covenant, in spirit and in truth, what he means by spirit is that a lot of the externals are done away with. And there's a reliance on the Holy Spirit to, to bring that fulfillment out in the worship service in, in the worship, and truth being based on Christ and His Word. And so, necessary consequence, right? By deduction, we see that uh, the theology of New Testament worship is very word centered, because that that uh, allows the um, say the, the kingdom of God, if you will, or um, to uh, be something that is. Uh, participated in a spiritual way and not some sort of external uh, typological form. But while those things are done away with, now we experience spiritual worship, which is uh, centered around the word. Uh, Terry Johnson, he has a little book entitled Reformed Worship. Um, I, I found some interesting things there. He also mentions the collection or the offering as an element of worship, and he bases it off of 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. You don't have to look at it now. If you want, you can. Uh, But he he considers uh, the collection as an element of worship. And of course, there's some debate on whether offering is an element of worship. However, some have even argued that the word fellowship in Acts 2.42, that that passage in Acts where you see... um, the church beginning to come together and God was adding numbers to that body and you you saw what were some of their practices. And in that verse, Acts 2.42, you see that description of fellowship, that there was a fellowship. And some have argued that the word fellowship in that passage meant a sharing of finances and goods. Since that passage uses the phrase, the fellowship, as something some, some sort of official activity um, and so some interpreters say that, oh, that's, that's them bringing things together, uh, bringing their goods together to, to be shared among the body. Moving along, some detractors might ask, well, since those are the, <laughs> the elements of worship, uh, what about things like hymnals and microphones and lights and things like that? Isn't that inconsistent with the regulative principle? I don't see that in the New Testament. <laughs> I don't see those, those things there. Does that mean we're unbiblical? And they, they might conclude that these things are innovations and are extra biblical elements of worship. And, and they would see it that way to try to disprove the restrictiveness of the regulative principle. But the Reformation tradition has always made a distinction between elements which we find in scripture that, that are commanded for us to, to do in worship, and those are the things that never change. But the distinction is that there are elements, and then there are forms, which is the content of the elements, we'll talk about that, and then there is another category of circumstances, which aren't elements of worship, but they, in a sense, create the setting for the elements to take place. So we've already discussed the elements, right? Prayer, word, preaching, singing, baptism, Lord's Supper. Let's talk about the forms, right? Regarding forms, essential worship elements may take different forms. So for example, the element of prayer may be expressed through extemporaneous or written out forms. The element of preaching may be done through, say, a textual or a topical form, right? Now, you you see, you understand that category, the form. It doesn't do away with the element. It just expresses how the element is performed. And I should say that not all forms are acceptable. So, for example, you can't dance a sermon, although I'm sure there are churches that may think that you can dance a sermon. And the reason why we can't dance a sermon is because sermon by nature is is spoken communication, and and it's that way biblically as well. So there are certain elements that, uh, because of the nature of the element, wouldn't allow for uh, different forms. Now let's talk about circumstances. I think this is the most uh, challenging or the most controversial one. Time, for example, the clock, for example, is a circumstance. Why is it a circumstance? Well, scripture doesn't tell us what time we should begin worship. However, it requires that we set an official time so that people know when to get here so that we can start our worship, so they can attend. And therefore setting a time is not a violation of the regulative principle, but rather it's a circumstance that's necessary for us to go ahead and begin with those elements in our order of worship. Another circumstance can be a, a written-out or, or order of worship so that the congregation know how to follow along, right? Maybe a, a written-out liturgy. Um, some ways say, that's not necessary, that's fine. But the, the point of categorizing that as a circumstance is that doesn't, it doesn't uh, hinder or doesn't disrupt or distract us from the actual um, the actual elements of worship. Now, depending on the context some of those things may or may not be necessary, right? And also, I want you to think about something else. Depending on the size of the congregation, a microphone and speakers may be considered in order to allow for the people to hear the word read or to hear the sermon preached, right? Now, in some situations, some contexts around the world, churches are smaller. Those things aren't necessary. Maybe maybe the... Uh, Preacher or the the worship leader is not, or is gifted rather, and is able to speak to a multitude of people, say like Spurgeon. I I heard that he didn't use a microphone, right? I think that's the case. But he was in a huge church and his voice would project in such a way that, and I'm sure that they were building um, things that uh, contributed to his ability to reach people Um, that filled the church. But again, in certain circumstances, a microphone might be useful. And again, this would fall under circumstances, even if some may choose not to use it. And the point is that it wouldn't violate the regulative principle. The same thing with having lights on. It falls under circumstances because we need to see each other. (laughs) Uh, But hopefully you understand the distinction there. Our confession explains the category of circumstances better than I can ever do. So I'm going to show you the paragraph here. Again, the Second London Confession, chapter 1, paragraph 6. Can someone read that? (coughs) Thanks, (laughs) y'all. The
1: whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory and salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the Church common to human actions and societies Which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed.
0: Thank you. I love this uh, this paragraph because because it it deals with the the light of nature and uh, natural theology, that sort of thing. But the focus here is about certain circumstances that require us to use wisdom. Christian prudence. Um, And again, this tells us that the circumstances, certain circumstances can be ordered by the light of nature without being considered add-ons. So the list that I gave you of certain circumstances uh, don't have to be considered add-ons to the regulative principle of worship, but they are judgments that the the church has to make in order for us to set it up in such a way that we can experience the worship service and not be violating the regulative, the regulative principle in any meaningful way. Now, with that said, I do wanna say something about the need to be patient and charitable when dealing with this topic of regulative principle. But before I get that, before I get there, uh, I wanna open up for any questions or concerns or thoughts. Is there, is there any questions about the regulative principle Anything that I've discussed? Yes, sir.
2: Okay, so um, so this week I read online, there's a pastor in Alberta, James Coates, who's in jail right now, because mm-hmm. um, uh, he refused to limit his church to 15% of capacity uh, in the midst of plummeting COVID numbers in that uh, province. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was on Twitter and I was reading, and uh, uh, there was an article posted and there was a pastor that had commented, and he had read the uh, uh, Matthew eighteen twenty for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Mm. So he was not referring to church discipline in that comment, but right. he was uh, really using it as a as a comment to say, hey, he really doesn't need more than fifteen percent of capacity right. because of of uh, Matthew eighteen twenty. I don't right. know if you have any thoughts about
0: that. Yeah yeah that's a that's a good question very good question i i would say that it, I, I would say he's wrong <laughs> um i would say he's wrong because there so on the one hand i want and i want to be careful with this on the one hand um there are settings where uh two or three are gathered and um we don't have to um, conclude that God is not with them. Um, but on the other hand, according to the theology of that passage, the, inter- the, the right interpretation of that passage, in my perspective, is that there has to, we have to preserve the distinction of when the church gathers um, un, you know, in the name of the Lord Jesus and, and the worship service is an official worship, worship service. Now, in this particular situation, I think the commentator or the person who commented is wanting to say that, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, if I'm reading him wrong, but it sounds like he's saying, well, he could have reduced the amount of of members to attend that particular worship service. That's a little different because I think that's a matter of uh, Christian prudence. And so I say this, that I know that many churches out there right now are taking a stand. And they're saying, I'm not going to make any kind of changes in my worship service because I want to follow scripture and hold to the regulative principle. And so I think that I shouldn't even make any changes. I know some churches that said, well, I'm going to make as many changes as I can as long as I don't violate the regulative principle where the state doesn't require me to do or to not uh, perform a certain essential worship element. But there are certain churches that find, found a way to work with it that they they decided not to um, immediately protest the state, right? If the state is being oppressive in that way, where they're adding all these restrictions that you can only have a certain amount of people, there are certain churches that have chosen not to protest against that, at least for right now. And I think that's a Christian prudence question because in their particular situation, in their particular setting, there are some churches that feel that they want to hold on and see if they can get through this without jumping right into protest which may possibly cause more damage to their particular church whether it be financially or it may be that their sheep scatter because of their participation in some sort of protest but i say that to say that there there might be certain settings depending on where you are in the country or maybe outside of the country where if the church decides to protest, then I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, Both uh, stand and fall before the Lord, as as, uh, Romans teaches us, that they make those decisions unto the Lord. I think that the problem is, I think, that when you look at a church, a famous church on TV, and you see them standing up for the Lord, and they're making all kinds of protests, that we say that's the way we have to go, and every church has to follow that model without considering all the things that they had to consider in their particular context. and so little warning for anyone. If you're hyped up about um, some of the actions that are happening in certain churches, popular churches, because they happen to be your favorite, you know, church with your favorite preacher, be slow to think that that's the model that all of us have to to follow. Florida, for example, is not suffering under a heavy weight of restrictions. But this year and last year, he had people saying, man, why aren't we standing up for, for Christ? And we're like, I mean, nothing's happening. We're good. You know? <laughs> stop, stop overreacting, you know? And that's the problem with Christian maturity, that everyone wants to take a stand without realizing that there's, there's really no stand necessary to take. And we have to be wise in those decisions. But anyway, um, I hope I somewhat answered your question, um, but it did provoke a lot, of, uh, a lot of other things that I mentioned here. Um, so uh, I hope that makes sense, that it, it really is a Christian prudence issue. Yeah. So yes, Scott.
1: Um, so I have two questions, but yeah. I'll ask the difficult one first. Yes, why, bring it. Why do you think those who claim to be confessional reformed have, and even just the Christian Church in general, yeah. have deviated from the regular? Principle?
0: Yeah, I think. Uh, I think I was reading uh, a book. Uh, Last name is Gore, and he the book is entitled. Um, I think it's called covenantal worship and uh his he he's a reformed guy and he pushes against the regulative principle Uh, well let me let me be fair he he tries to redefine it a little bit and he makes great points and his his argument is that in the reformed tradition um there's been too much variety and a lot of different views as um as it comes to this this particular subject of the regulative principle, for us to to be so rigid and be so uh, committed to one particular side, namely the Puritan sort of uh, heavy-handed regulative principle concept. But I think the the primary reason why I think people are loose with it is because of the false idea that um, these restrictions will be burdensome, I think. Um, So there's a historical reconsideration and then I think just the, the idea that these things are too restrictive, which I, I disagree with. I, I probably side more on the Puritan side, but I think that a lot of this helps the church to keep its focus on, on God when we, when we uh, stand on those Puritan principles. but I don't know if that yeah Cool. Did you have a second one or? So would we say that the
1: regular principle is also maybe not, if not directly, at least principally, mm-hmm. helps us to see how we establish things in terms
0: of church polity and the sacraments? Yeah, yeah. So, the, so I would say that the confession, let's just say the one that we hold, it, it's, it's not a document that explicitly lays out, say for example, in church polity in every uh, level, at every level. But if you read it carefully, there are certain things that are assumed there. Um, like you can almost immediately see uh, some independency when you read uh, the Second London Confession versus when you when you read, say, the Westminster or any anything before it. Um, so there's a lot of things that require you to read it and then consider the historical context so that you can come to these conclusions. Because especially in matters of church polity, a lot of that is not straightforward, but I think it's there, honestly. I, I think that you can pull out clues and see that you can land somewhere. And particularly with the particular Baptists or the Reformed Baptists, um, just by following their, their, uh, their tradition and, and uh, their example, you can see where they leaned as far as like church polity, things like that. But anyway, hope that helps. Any other question? Yeah.
1: Just considering the subject in, in large, and looking at the regular principle of why others would deviate. I, I think part of this is if you are fighting against the guidelines the Lord gives us, mm-hmm. in a way you're denied, denying that the Holy Spirit can <clears throat> work within the parameters He set. Mm-hmm. And I immediately thought of you know, yeah, And so is the purpose of worship to approach God, or is it pro- the purpose of worship to move men? Hmm. And once you land in one of those two places, that, that is going to set yes. deviant courses yep. to worship.
0: Absolutely. That's a, such a great point. That's, that's really the bottom line if you think about it. You're either uh, going to follow what's explicitly commanded or sort of make up your own way and then be deviant in that way. But we're, we're done here, but I, I do want to read something that I think is important because it, it should set the tone for how we look at this. Um, we need to recognize that many things that I've mentioned in this class is not going to be so obvious to people, okay? For example, you may visit a church that subscribes to Reformed worship or the regulative principle, but they may differ in opinion on whether or not a particular element or form is acceptable or is consistent with scripture. Some Reformed churches believe that in order to be consistent with the regulative principle, um, you know they would say that this would result in exclusive psalmody or it, they would say, that it wouldn't allow for any instruments in worship at all. And I think they have some good arguments. I think it's worth listening to and, and, uh, and uh, paying attention to. But you see that some churches land differently on how the regulative principle is expressed. So some, again, interpret the principle more generally and would be okay with things like hymn and instruments. But the point is to say that we must be patient and charitable as we deal with disagreement. This isn't to say that the truth isn't important, it is. However, Romans 14.5 tells us that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, when dealing with these differences, you have to realize that you cannot coerce someone into believing your perspective. And I'm not talking about (laughs) the use of a weapon, but when you, because that's what you think of when you think of coercion. I'm talking about even a a verbal kind of coercion. And and again, you can't coerce someone into believing your perspective, even if your perspective is true. Coercion is a method of force that I think disguises itself under discussion, things like that. But really, it's just a power move. It convinces no one. So for example, you can say, come on, man, it's clear in Scripture. What's wrong with you? Why are are you being so blind and disobedient? Saying that doesn't actually make it any clearer to that person. You, you just didn't do anything by doing that. It requires, as it says in Romans 4, 14, 5, that they be fully convinced. Therefore, we must, we must not engage in any theological bullying. Okay? That happens online. That happens in our smaller groups. It happens you know, in, in different circles. That happens, and it's very common, theological bullying. Using bully tactics are really just power moves and they're not actual methods of reasoning. And so you may win an argument, but you convince nobody. So nothing happened. You may have caused a a big uh, division in the church or a seed of division in the church, but you convince no one. Again, the most loving thing you could ever do is to patiently help others to grow in their understanding, using reason infused with love and wisdom. And so it's important as we think through these issues of worship and the regulative principle. Concluding, there are lots of things that may be practiced in worship service or services around us that might be unbiblical and mere inventions of men. And I think it's a good thing for us and for everyone to stop and think, what are some of those things that are uh, inventions of men <laughs> if we desire to pursue a more biblically faithful worship? Nevertheless, we trust that Christ continues to build his church, and, and part of this is returning us back to worship that is done in spirit and in truth. So, so may the Lord continue to reform us in our worship in conformity to his holy word. Let me close out in prayer. Our Father, we, we thank you for what you have revealed in your word, uh, yet we recognize that only you can help us to see it and understand it and obey. Therefore, help us to apply these truths as a church, as we seek to revere you, and we seek to honor you as holy. May your spirit do that work, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.